Chapter 3, Part 3 of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 3, The Period of Growth. Part 3, The Expanding Vocabulary. A glance at some of the characteristic coinages of the time, as they are revealed in the Congressional Globe, in contemporary newspapers and political tracts, and in that grotesque small literature of humor, which began with Judge Thomas C. Halliburton's Sam Slick in 1835, is almost enough to make one sympathize with Dean Alford. Bartlett quotes, To doxologize from the Christian Disciple, a quite reputable religious paper of the forties. To citizenize was used and explained by Senator Young of Illinois in the Senate on February 1, 1841, and he gave Noah Webster as authority for it. To funeralize and to missionate, along with consociational, were contributions of the backwoods pulpit. Perhaps it also produced hell-roaring and hellion, the latter of which was a favorite of the Mormons, and even got into a sermon by Henry Ward Beecher. To deacon, a verb of decent mien in colonial days, signifying to read a hymn line by line, responded to the rough humor of the time, and began to mean to swindle or adulterate, example to put the largest berries at the top of the box, to extend one's fences sub rosa, or to mix sand with sugar. A great rage for extending the vocabulary by the use of suffixes seized upon the corn-fed etymologists, and they produced a formidable new vocabulary in I-Z-E, A-T-E, I-F-Y, A-C-Y, O-U-S, and M-E-N-T. Such inventions as to obligate, to concertize, to questionize, retiracy, savageress, coatee, a sort of diminutive for coat, and citified, appeared in the popular vocabulary, and even got into more or less good usage. Fowler, in 1850, cited publishment and releasement with no apparent thought that they were uncouth. And at the same time, many verbs were made by the simple process of back formation, as to resurrect, to excurt, to resolute, to burgle. Footnote. J.R. Ware, in Passing English of the Victorian Era, says that to burgle was introduced to London by W.S. Gilbert in The Three Pirates of Penzance, April 3, 1880. It was used in America thirty years before. End footnote. And to enthuse. Footnote. This process, of course, is philologically respectable, however uncouth its occasional products may be. By it we have acquired many everyday words, among them to accept from acceptum, to exact from exactum, to darkle from darkling, and pea from peas, pois. End footnote.
Some of these inventions, after flourishing for a generation or more, were retired with blushes during the period of aesthetic consciousness following the Civil War, but a large number have survived to our own day and are in good usage. Not even the most bilious purist would think of objecting to to affiliate, to itemize, to resurrect, or to Americanize today, and yet all of them gave grief to the judicious when they first appeared in the debates of Congress, brought there by statesmen from the backwoods. Nor to such simpler verbs of the period as to corner, i.e. the market, to boss, and to lynch. Footnote. All authorities save one seem to agree that this verb is a pure Americanism, and that it is derived from the name of Charles Lynch, a Virginia Justice of the Peace, who jailed many loyalists in 1780 without warrant in law. The dissentient, Bristed, says that to lynch is in various northern English dialects and means to beat or maltreat. End footnote. Nor perhaps to to boom, to boost, to kick in the sense of to protest, to coast, on a sled, to engineer, to collide, to chink, i.e. logs, to fees, to splurge, to aggravate in the sense of to anger, to yank, and to crawfish. These verbs have entered into the very fiber of the American vulgate, and so have many nouns derived from them, example, boomer, Boomtown, bouncer, kicker, kick, splurge, roller coaster. A few of them, example, to collide and to fees, were archaic English terms brought to new birth. A few others, example, to holler. Footnote. The correct form of this appears to be halloo or halloa, but in America it is pronounced holler and usually represented in print by hollow, H-O-L-L-O, or hollow, H-O-L-L-O-W. I have often encountered hollowed in the past tense, but the public printer frankly accepts holler. Vide the Congressional Record, May 12, 1917, page 2309. The word, in the form of hollering, is here credited to Honorable John J. Burnett of Alabama. There can be no doubt that the Honorable Gentleman said hollering and not hallowing, halloa-ing, or holloa-ing, or hollowing, or hallooing. Hello is apparently a variation of the same word. End footnote. And to muss were obviously mere corruptions. But a good many others, example, to bulldoze, to hornswoggle, and to scoot, were genuine inventions and redolent of the soil. With the new verbs came a great swarm of verb phrases, some of them short and pithy, and others extraordinarily elaborate, but all showing the true national talent for condensing a complex thought, and often a whole series of thoughts, into a vivid and arresting image. Of the first class are to fill the bill, to fizzle out, to make tracks, 
to peter out, to plank down, to go back on, to keep tab, to light out, and to backwater. Side by side with them we have inherited such common coins of speech as to make the fur fly, to cut a swath, to know him like a book, to keep a stiff upper lip, to cap the climax, to handle without gloves, to freeze onto, to go it blind, to pull wool over his eyes, to know the ropes, to get solid with, to spread oneself, to run into the ground, to dodge the issue, to paint the town red, to take a back seat, and to get ahead of. These are so familiar that we use them and hear them without thought. They seem as authentically parts of the English idiom as to be left at the post. And yet, as the labors of Thornton have demonstrated, all of them are of American nativity, and the circumstances surrounding the origin of some of them have been accurately determined. Many others are palpably the products of the great movement toward the West, for example, to pan out, to strike it rich, to jump or enter a claim, to pull up stakes, to rope in, to die with one's boots on, to get the dead wood on, to get the drop, to back and fill, a steamboat phrase used figuratively, and to get the bulge on. And in many others, the authentic American is no less plain. For example, in to kick the bucket, to put a bug in his ear, to see the elephant, to crack up, to do up brown, to bark up the wrong tree, to jump on with both feet, to go the whole hog, to make a kick, to buck the tiger, to let it slide, and to come out at the little end of the horn. To play possum belongs to this list. To it, Thornton adds, to knock into a cocked hat, despite its English sound, and to have an axe to grind. To go for both in the sense of belligerency and in that of partisanship, is also American, and so is to go through, i.e. to plunder. Of adjectives, the list is scarcely less long. Among the coinages of the first half of the century that are in good use today are non-committal, highfalutin, well-posted, downtown, played out, flat-footed, whole-souled, and true-blue. The first appears in a Senate debate of 1841. Highfalutin in a political speech of the same decade. Both are useful words. It is impossible not employing them to convey the ideas behind them without circumlocution. The use of slim in the sense of meager, as in slim chance, slim attendance and slim support, goes back still further. The English use small in place of it. Other and less respectable contributions of the time are brash, brainy, peart, locoed, pesky, picayune, scary, well-heeled, hard-shell, example Baptist, 
loaf-long, codfish to indicate opprobrium, and go to meeting. The use of plum as an adjective, as in plum crazy, is an English archaism that was revived in the United States in the early years of the century. In the more orthodox adverbial form of plump, it still survives. For example, in she fell plump into his arms. But this last is also good English. The characteristic American substitution of mad for angry goes back to the 18th century and perhaps denotes the survival of an English provincialism. Witherspoon noticed it and denounced it in 1781, and in 1816 Pickering called it low and said that it was not used except in very familiar conversation. But it got into much better odor soon afterward, and by 1840 it passed unchallenged. Its use is one of the peculiarities that Englishmen most quickly notice in American colloquial speech today. In formal written discourse, it is less often encountered, probably because the English marking of it has so conspicuously singled it out. But it is constantly met with in the newspapers and in the congressional record, and it is not infrequently used by such writers as Howells and Dreiser. In the familiar simile, as mad as a hornet, it is used in the American sense. But as mad as a March hare is English and connotes insanity, not mere anger. The English meaning of the word is preserved in madhouse and mad dog, but I have often noticed that American rustics, employing the latter term, derive from it a vague notion, not that the dog is demented, but that it is in a simple fury. From this notion, perhaps, comes the popular belief that dogs may be thrown into hydrophobia by teasing and badgering them. It was not, however, among the verbs and adjectives that the American word coiners of the first half of the century achieved their gaudiest innovations, but among the substantives. Here they had temptation and excuse in plenty, for innumerable new objects and relations demanded names, and here they exercised their fancy without restraint. Setting aside loan words, which will be considered later, three main varieties of new nouns were thus produced. The first consisted of English words rescued from obsolescence or changed in meaning. The second of compounds manufactured of the common materials of the mother tongue, and the third of entirely new inventions. Of the first class, good specimens are deck of cards, gulch, gully, and billion. The first three, old English words restored to usage in America, and the last, a sound English word changed in meaning. Of the second class, examples are offered by gumshoe, mortgage shark, dugout, shotgun, stag party, wheat pit, horse sense, chipped beef, oyster supper, buzz saw, chain gang, and hell box. And of the third, there are instances in bunkum, greaser, conniption, bloomer, campus, galoot, maverick, 
roustabout, bugaboo, and blizzard. Of these coinages, perhaps those of the second class are most numerous and characteristic. In them, American exhibits one of its most marked tendencies, a habit of achieving shortcuts in speech by a process of agglutination. Why explain laboriously, as an Englishman might, that the notes of a new bank, in a day of innumerable new banks, are insufficiently secure? Call them wildcat notes and have done. Why describe a gigantic rainstorm with the lame adjectives of every day? Call it a cloudburst and immediately a vivid picture of it is conjured up. Roughneck is a capital word. It is more apposite and savory than the English navvy, and it is overwhelmingly more American. Footnote. Roughneck is often cited in discussions of slang as a latter-day invention, but Thornton shows that it was used in Texas in 1836. End footnote. Square meal is another. Fire eater is yet another. And the same instinct for the terse, the eloquent, and the picturesque is in boiled shirt, blowout, big bug, claim jumper, spread eagle, come down, back number, claw hammer, coat, bottom dollar, puppycock, cold snap, back talk, back taxes, calamity howler, cut off, firebug, grab bag, grip sack, grub steak, pay dirt, tenderfoot, stocking feet, ticket scalper, store clothes, small potatoes, cakewalk, prairie schooner, roundup, snake fence, flatboat, under the weather, on the hoof, and jumping off place. These compounds, there must be thousands of them, have been largely responsible for giving the language its characteristic tang and color. Such specimens as bellhop, semi-occasional, chair warmer, and down and out are as distinctively American as baseball or the quick lunch. The spirit of the language appears scarcely less clearly in some of the coinages of the other classes. There are, for example, the English words that have been extended or restricted in meaning. Example, docket for court calendar, betterment for improvement to property, collateral for security, crank for fanatic, jumper for tunic, tickler for memorandum or reminder. Footnote. This use goes back to 1839. End footnote. Carnival, in such phrases as carnival of crime, scrape for fight or difficulty. Footnote. Thornton gives an example dated 1812. Of late, the word has lost its final e and shortened its vowel, becoming scrap. End footnote. Flurry, of snow or in the market, suspenders, diggings for habitation, and range. Again, there are the new assemblings of English materials, example, doggery, rowdy, teetotaler, goatee, tony, and cussedness. 
Yet again, there are the purely artificial words. Example, sockdolager, honky-dory, scalawag, gyascutis, spondulix, slumgullion, rambunctious, scrumptious, to skedaddle, to absquatulate, and to explunkticate. Footnote. Terms of Approbation and Eulogy by Elise L. Warnock, Dialect Notes, Volume 4, Part 1, 1913. Among the curious recent coinages cited by Miss Warnock are Scallywampus, Supergobusnoptious, Hyperformaceous, Scrumdiferous, and Swellelegus. End footnote. In the use of the last named coinages, fashions change. In the 40s, to absquatulate was in good usage, but it has since disappeared. Most of the other inventions of the time, however, have to some extent survived, and it would be difficult to find an American of today who did not know the meaning of scalawag and rambunctious, and who did not occasionally use them. A whole series of artificial American words groups itself around the prefix K-E-R. For example, kerflop, kersplash, kerthump, kerbang, kerplunk, kerslam, and kerflummox. This prefix and its onomatopoeic daughters have been borrowed by the English, but Thornton and Ware agree that it is American. Its origin has not been determined. As Sace says, the native instinct of language breaks out wherever it has the chance, and coins words which can be traced back to no ancestors. In the first chapter, I mentioned the superior imaginativeness revealed by Americans in meeting linguistic emergencies, whereby, for example, in seeking names for new objects introduced by the building of railroads, they surpassed the English plow and crossing plate with cow-catcher and frog. That was in the 30s. Already at that early day, the two languages were so differentiated that they produced wholly distinct railroad nomenclatures. Such commonplace American terms as boxcar, caboose, airline, and ticket agent are still quite unknown in England. So are freight car, flagman, towerman, switch, switching engine, switch yard, switchman, track walker, engineer, baggage room, baggage check, baggage smasher, accommodation train, baggage master, conductor, express car, flat car, hand car, waybill, express man, express office, fast freight, wrecking crew, jerkwater, commutation ticket, commuter, round trip, mileage book, ticket scalper, depot, limited, hot box, iron horse, stopover, tie, rail, fish plate, run, train boy, chair car, club car, diner, sleeper, bumpers, mail clerk, passenger coach, day coach, excursionist, excursion train, railroad man, ticket office, truck, and right-of-way, not to mention the verbs to flag, to derail, to express, 
to deadhead, to sideswipe, to stop over, to fire, i.e. a locomotive, to switch, to sidetrack, to railroad, to commute, to telescope, and to clear the track. These terms are in constant use in America. Their meaning is familiar to all Americans. Many of them have given the language everyday figures of speech. Footnote. Example, single-track mind. To jump the rails. To collide head-on. Broad-gauge man. To walk the ties. Blind baggage. Underground railroad. Tank town. End footnote but the majority of them would puzzle an Englishman, just as the English luggage van, permanent way, goods wagon, guard, carrier, booking office, return ticket, railway rug, RSO, railway sub-office, tripper, line, points, shunt, metals, and bogey would puzzle the average untraveled American. In two other familiar fields, very considerable differences between English and American are visible. In both fields, they go back to the era before the Civil War. They are politics and that department of social intercourse which has to do with drinking. Many characteristic American political terms originated in revolutionary days and have passed over into English. Of such sort are caucus and mileage. But the majority of those in common use today were coined during the extraordinarily exciting campaigns following the defeat of Adams by Jefferson. Charles Ledyard Norton has devoted a whole book to their etymology and meaning. The number is far too large for a list of them to be attempted here, but a few characteristic specimens may be recalled. For example, the simple agglutinates, omnibus bill, Banner State, Favorite Son, Anxious Bench, Gag Rule, Office Seeker, and Straight Ticket, The Humorous Metaphors, Pork Barrel, Pie Counter, Wire Puller, Landslide, Carpet Bagger, Lame Duck, and On the Fence. The old words put to new uses. Plank, Platform, Machine, Precinct, slate, primary, floater, repeater, bolter, stalwart, filibuster, regular, and fences. The new coinages, gerrymander, healer, buncombe, roarback, mugwump, and to bulldoze. The new derivatives, abolitionist, candidacy. Boss rule, per diem, to lobby, and boodler, and the almost innumerable verbs and verb phrases, to knife, to split a ticket, to go up Salt River, to bolt, to eat crow, to boodle, to divvy, to grab, and to run. An English candidate never runs, he stands. To run, according to Thornton, was already used in America in 1789. It was universal by 1820. Platform came in at the same time. Machine was first applied to a political organization by Aaron Burr. The use of mugwump 
is commonly thought to have originated in the Blaine campaign of 1884, but it really goes back to the 30s. Anxious bench, or anxious seat, at first designated only the place occupied by the penitent at revivals, but was used in its present political sense in Congress so early as 1842. Banner State appears in Niles' Register for December 5, 1840. Favorite Son appears in an ode addressed to Washington on his visit to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in 1789, but it did not acquire its present ironical sense until it was applied to Martin Van Buren. Thornton has traced Bolter to 1812, Filibuster to 1863, Roerback to 1844, and Split Ticket to 1842. Regularity was an issue in Tammany Hall in 1822. There were primaries in New York City in 1827, and hundreds of repeaters voted. In 1829, there were lobby agents at Albany, and they soon became lobbyists. In 1832, lobbying had already extended to Washington. All of these terms are now as firmly embedded in the American vocabulary as election or congressman. In the Department of Conviviality, the imaginativeness of Americans has been shown in both the invention and the naming of new and often highly complex beverages. So vast has been the production of novelties, in fact, that England has borrowed many of them, and their names with them. And not only England, one buys cocktails and gin fizzes in American bars that stretch from Paris to Yokohama. Cocktail Stone Fence and Sherry Cobbler were mentioned by Irving in 1809. By Thackeray's day, they were already well-known in England. Thornton traces the Sling to 1788, and the Stinky Bus and Antifogmatic, both now extinct, to the same year. The origin of the Ricky, Fizz, Sour, Cooler, Skin, shrub and smash, and of such curious American drinks as the Horse's Neck, Mamie Taylor, Tom and Jerry, Tom Collins, John Collins, Bishop, Stonewall, Gin Fix, Brandy Champerel, Golden Slipper, Harry Carey, Locomotive, Whiskey Daisy, Blue Blazer, Black Stripe, White Plush, and Brandy Crusta is quite unknown. The historians of alcoholism, like the philologists, have neglected them. Footnote. Extensive lists of such drinks with their ingredients are to be found in the Hoffman House Bartender's Guide by Charles Mahoney, 4th edition, New York, 1916. The up-to-date Bartender's Guide by Harry Montague, Baltimore, 1913, and in Wayman Brothers' Bartender's Guide, New York, 1912. An early list from the Lancaster, Pennsylvania Journal of January 26, 1821 is quoted by Thornton, Volume 2, page 985. End footnote. But the essentially American character of most of them is obvious, despite the fact that a number have gone over into English. The English, in naming their drinks, commonly display a far more limited imagination 
seeking a name, for example, for a mixture of whiskey and soda water, the best they could achieve was whiskey and soda. The Americans, introduced to the same drink, at once gave it the far more original name of highball. So with ginger ale and ginger pop. So with minerals and soft drinks. Other characteristic Americanisms, a few of them borrowed by the English, are red-eye, corn juice, eye-opener, forty-rod, squirrel whiskey, phlegm-cutter, moonshine, hard cider, applejack, and corpse-reviver, and the auxiliary drinking terms speak-easy, sample-room, blind-pig, barrel-house, bouncer, bung-starter, dive, doggery, schooner, shell, stick, duck, straight, saloon, finger, pony, and chaser. Thornton shows that jag, bust, bat, and to crook the elbow are also Americanisms. So are bartender and saloon keeper. To them might be added a long list of common American synonyms for drunk, for example, piffled, pifflicated, awry-eyed, tanked, snooted, stewed, ossified, slopped, fiddled, edged, loaded, het up, frazzled, jugged, soused, jiggered, corned, jagged, and bunned. Farmer and Henley list corned and jagged among English synonyms, but the former is obviously an Americanism derived from corn whiskey or corn juice, and Thornton says that the latter originated on this side of the Atlantic also. End of chapter 3, part 3. Recording by Linda Johnson.